0: Hello, hello. Welcome to the Good Garbage Podcast. My name is Ved Krishna. My primary reason for existence has been to find ways to leave our wonderful planet cleaner. We will be speaking with material innovators, creators, and propagators to learn from them how we can build for scale and towards a regenerative future. Their stories will help us answer the big question, what is good garbage? Today we get to hear from both Nicole Raikraft and Valerie Langer from Canopy. I met Valerie a few months back and became a fan immediately. The work Canopy does is truly pathbreaking and world-changing. In their quest to save forests, they have adopted a strategy to not just influence but also inspire alternates to non-renewables and timber-based products. They have inspired over 150 leading brands to make commitments towards shifting their materials. The industries include fashion, food and beverage, cosmetics, and publishing. We cover a wide range of subjects from endangered forests to alternative materials. I am sure you will leave inspired. Hello, hello, I'm so happy today to have uh, Valerie and Nicole join me from Canopy. This is actually a total fan moment uh, you both. I'm, I'm just so excited. So if I'm gushing, forgive me, but I'll try not to. I want to give a little bit of a backstory on how Valerie and I met. We were both at this conference called Rethinking Materials in London and uh, I was sitting on one side of the room and there was this wonderful lady who spoke from the other side, about carbon sequestration and old growth forests. And it literally lifted my spirits that somebody was talking about this. But I kept looking for you after that. And I was like, I have to meet her, I have to meet her, I have to find a way to get to Valerie. And then eventually I met you and you said, you wanted to meet me. So I was like, oh, awesome. This is just such important work uh, that you are doing. And I'm just such a fan of how you're doing it because I think it matters so much to bring people together and to build scale, because that's the only real way we are going to build an impact. So thank you both uh, from the bottom of my heart for doing what you're doing.
1: It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure to be here.
0: So I'm going to start with uh, a question that I always find intriguing, uh, which is childhood memories. And uh, how did your individual childhoods uh, impact what you do today?
2: Valerie, do you want to jump in? Sure. Uh, Well, it made me smile when you said how my early life and packaging were somehow related because as a a kid, my family lived abroad for five years, and we moved back to Canada. I went to school. It was grade one. And on my way, walking back home from school, there was litter on the street. And I was... Incensed, it was just I was I was offended by it. I picked it up and put it in my pockets. My mother was like, "What have you got in your pockets?" I said, "Well, people just throw things on the street here. They just throw the packaging from candy wrappers down, and I don't like it." And so, this became a pattern where my mother would always like pull this litter that I would pick up off the street, and then there was a protest that was happening. And I wanted to go, and I made my own sign in grade two. (laughs) I made my own sign. Troublemaker (laughs) from an early age, clearly. Uh, That said, uh, stop littering. And I spelt littering wrong. When my mother saw the sign, she said, oh, that's so cute. And I... when I found out that I'd spelled it wrong, I was just, I was embarrassed. And she's like, made me go out with the sign spelled, with the spelling wrong. Cause she said, it'll make people know how genuine this is. <laughs> I didn't make you write it. <laughs> so I have been offended by people wasting things and treating the earth as a garbage can since I was a very young child, it's uh, you know, that was my own little thing stuffing litter in my pockets in order to clean up the the world in which I walked. But my parents had a lot to do with my sense of social justice, that we need to leave the world in a in a good way, and we need to keep it in a good way as we live our life.
1: So you would have loved a song that I learned in elementary school. I think it was first or second grade. It was about litterbugs and how <laughs> I, I can sing it if you want, but it may sure. not be all that... New. Please, please do. Okay, warning everybody. I'm not a karaoke queen. That was like, litterbugs come in every size, every size. They're really monsters in disguise, in disguise. And then it goes on from there. So uh, Ved, I grew up in Australia. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been to Australia, but there's an intensity to being in Australia. It's it's hot. It's loud. The cicadas, the birds, um, with the heat, the eucalyptus oil in the forest gets released, and so it's quite pungent. And so it's it's kind of this sensory experience that I think um, just got woven into my fabric at a very early age. Um, and I was lucky to have a grandmother and grow up in a family where you know there was a real love of wild places. And so I think that appreciation of our natural world was just part of my childhood, even though I grew up in Sydney, a big city on the East Coast in Australia. Our family would sell we celebrated Christmas, and there was always this massive mountain of both kind of Christmas paper and the boxes that things had come in. And I remember as a kid, you know, a being super excited about my kind of swag of of goodies that I'd received, but also just kind of marveling about this mountain of waste just from our quite small family Uh, and so when I got into my teenage years and I really drew the connection between packaging coming from forests and the fact that so much of it's single use and ends up just going to landfill I really started a push within the family as as teenage activists will be want to do that kind of activism at the breakfast table of wrapping things either in newsprint or recycled papers or things like that. It wasn't necessarily a particularly successful campaign with anybody else within the family taking it on, but they tolerated uh, my gifts turning up in that respect.
0: That's just wonderful. Uh, So my six, seven-year-old now is is like you, Valerie. She doesn't leave a single wrapper and we walk a lot in forests. And if she sees anything, she'll be like, oh, somebody is littered again. So I want to switch to what has been the one thing that you guys have both been driving is saving the ancient forests, the biodiversity and the heritage that we have as citizens of this planet. So I, want, uh, I would love to hear both of you talk about ancient forests, what they mean and how they are so important. I guess everybody knows they're important, but how important?
1: Go ahead, Nicole. Yeah, I think the, the thing for me with forests is that they are foundational for life on Earth. And our personal relationship with forests starts with the very first breath that we draw, like that first lung full of oxygen that we gulp in desperately as a a newborn baby. That's the start of a really beautiful and completely codependent relationship that we have with forests over the course of our lives. And so forests, like our relationship with forests, is intensely personal at that level. And then also when we move up to planetary scale and uh, the impacts and support that it provides to the rest of humanity, forest ecosystems represent 30% of the climate solution. If we keep logging forests the way that we are, uh, we'll release 260 gigatons of additional GHGs into the atmosphere over the course of the next decade. They're integral to the precipitation cycle, establishing the biotic pump and drawing precipitation across continents to make sure that crops are successful and healthy. They provide medicines and home to millions and millions of indigenous and frontline communities around the world and and the cultural and spiritual foundations of civilization of of those communities. and, And many modern-day communities as well and then of course they're home to 80% of the world's biodiversity and I don't think that we can contemplate the loss of species and animals like orangutans who we share 97% of our DNA with without also contemplating
2: uh, a loss of part of our own humanity. Valerie? Well I'm a forest gal I grew up a good part of my life on a farm within a stone's throw of, of not old growth forests, there's a second growth forests, but I used to go out to them all the time and sit in trees and feel for some reason like I was talking with them without talking. So I've had a, a long-standing feeling of connection, but it was when I was in my 20s and moved to the west coast of, of Canada to a beautiful area called Clackwit Sound. It's a 262,000 hectare temperate rainforest on the west coast of Vancouver Island. And I arrived at literally the end of the road in Canada. So I looked out and up at these beautiful rainforest islands that were in, in front of me and behind me and around me and the ocean that was, it's all like the forest meets the ocean and those two massive systems are completely interconnected. The whales feed off of the plankton which grows from the nutrients that come out of the rivers and the salmon spawn in these rivers and get eaten by bears and the bears take the nitrogen from the ocean and metabolize it and then go and do what bears do in the woods. The the ocean nitrogen goes you know hundreds of kilometers up into the forest and so there's a nutrient flow from the forest to the ocean from the ocean back into the forest with all of these vectors the moisture off the ocean getting drawn by the transpiration of forests so you get water coming off of the top of the ocean and pulled into forests and then pumped through forest to forest to forest until it hits the fields of farmers thousands of kilometers inland. And as I was experiencing like the being in the forest and this like this incredible feeling of being amongst hundred and thousand year old beings is It's just, it's just a, a, a feeling of a feeling of awe and then understanding the systems and how we live as these little things that run around for maybe 70-80 years <laughs> Amongst these giants that form part of these five big systems, which all our lives depend on, there's the ocean, the soil, the forests, the atmosphere, and then there's fresh water systems. Those are the five big things. They interact with each other and they make our life possible. And our meddling with these five big systems. Is meddling with our own lives, and when you understand systems and how they work, and cycles and how they work, it just became really logical. My feeling about forests and the way I feel about the systems kind of came together in this wonderful opportunity for me to work in a way that brings that love of and awe into a systems approach to how we make the way we live better.
0: That's wonderful. I want everybody listening to at least hear of how you started and you started protecting forests and you ended up in jails. And I don't know, Nicole, if you have that past as well, but I uh, would love to hear that story before we jump into canopy and you know what you guys are trying to build, Valerie.
2: The logging industry in, in Canada, as in a few other places, is very closely connected to the governments. It's a long-standing industry and extractive industry and the leaders of of industry often have this porous uh, back and forth between being leaders of things like the Ministry of Forests and then they go back to the industry and so you have a very industry-centric set of policies and laws uh, which are aimed to facilitate the extraction of forests and so our Ministry of Forests isn't actually about forests about forestry and how best to extract fiber from forests. But of course, forests are much more than fiber. They're home. One of their primary functions is home to species. And they're everything else that we've described. So uh, this little scrappy little organization on the edge of the world that I was involved with called the Friends of Clackwit Sound uh, was working in conjunction with uh, several of the First Nations uh, communities in the area that didn't want to see their territories logged. We had absolutely zero success in having a reasonable, rational conversation about ecosystems and about rights and title. And so when you reach the end of the possibility of getting to a rational solution by discussion, there are very few options that are left when the chainsaws are coming in. And so a number of us uh, put ourselves peacefully. It was a non violent protest. It was a display of our principle. And so a number of us stood in the road and said, We can't, in good conscience, let you come through. We were arrested. We were charged with uh, disobeying a judge's uh, civil injunction. And we had the choice of paying the fine or doing time in jail. And we said, we can't in good conscience pay a fine because that would be an admission that we'd done something wrong. And so we served time in jail. It was two, well, about two weeks.
0: That's amazing. So, so, Nicola, happy to hear if you have a similar story. But otherwise, uh, you know, we talk about how this impactful organization has been created with, with this love for old forests and then really channelizing it into something called Canopy. So I'm sure there's a lot of thought, experience, effort, mistakes, learnings that went into it. So would love to hear uh, that journey along with any of the anarchism that you experienced as well.
1: Yeah, sure. So many mistakes, so many mistakes. It's like, where to start if we were going to talk about those? But uh, yeah, I have a slightly less colorful rap sheet than Valerie does, um, uh I've definitely I've participated in civil disobedience, you know, here in Canada when I first started Canopy, which was literally at the kitchen table with an $1,800 budget and just a belief that we didn't need to be logging these critical, beautiful, um, complex ecosystems to make pizza boxes and T-shirts, that we had to be smarter than that. It wasn't uncommon for me to start my morning standing on a protest line, uh, stopping logging trucks, and then going back to the kitchen table uh, to do some of the foundational work for Canopy. My background, I, I live in Canada now, as you can probably tell from my now funny accent, and on my way from Australia to Canada, well, I spent a year and a half in Southeast Asia and a fair bit of time doing some volunteer work with a great organization on the Thai-Burmese border, documenting the link between human rights violations and environmental degradation, and the link between forced labor and the use of child soldiers, and essentially a war against their own population to build unsustainable infrastructure products that were depleting the natural resources of Burma. As I was in and out of refugee camps and rebel army camps documenting those stories, it became very obvious that there's this absolute interconnectedness between human rights violations and environmental degradation. And it's all happening under the rubric of the global economy and the supply and demand world. And so given that I was on my way to Canada, or the belly of the beast of global consumption of North America, it felt like an incredible opportunity to work to harness some of that purchasing influence, some of the market mechanism, the just the sheer sort of momentum and mass uh, that that has to redirect the marketplace to help drive positive change rather than it leaving this inadvertent sort of trail of destruction both on the social side as well as on the environmental side. So when I started Canopy, it really was with that sense that we are smarter than chopping down 400 year old trees to make shipping boxes and t shirts. And there are these other alternatives that have a lower footprint uh, ecologically that can add social value and that currently are being treated as waste. And in nature, there is no such thing as waste. Everything is part of a perpetual cycle of life. And so the forest conservation imperative, along with how do we transition from, okay, we can't use. These forests, and we shouldn't be using as much forest fibre uh, to meet modern society's needs, to how do we diversify the fibre basket um, to these lower footprint alternatives that are often seen as waste. That's all been part of Canopy's trajectory. Um, So Canopy is a solutions-driven, not-for-profit organisation, and we work to protect the world's forests species, and climate, and help advance frontline community rights. Uh, And we do that by harnessing the purchasing influence of the marketplace. So we currently work with over 800 large corporate customers of the forest products industry, so companies like Walmart, Amazon, H&M, Zara, Penguin Random House, so companies that either use a lot of paper, paper paper-based packaging, or wood-based fabrics like viscose and rayon, And we help them to develop cutting-edge environmental policies, and then we work with them over a number of years to actually implement those policies, so to remove sourcing from high carbon, high biodiversity value forests, what we call ancient and endangered forests from their supply chain, to help build better sustainable forestry practices in second growth forest areas, to actually transition away from being so reliant on wood altogether and to prioritize the production of next generation solution alternatives and then ultimately to work with us and their peers to help secure conservation on the ground. So it's global in scope, but really focused on transforming unsustainable supply chains that are currently the
2: systemic drivers of forest loss and forest degradation. Well, there are two aspects to Canopy's work on two types of materials, paper and paper packaging and viscose. So about uh, three billion trees get pulped every year to make paper. So somewhere over 400 million tons of paper is made every year. And of the 400 million, about half of it uh, is recycled and about half of it is Virgin fiber of that virgin fiber, about half of it comes from ancient and endangered forests. And that is the half of the virgin fiber that we think could be made with alternatives because plant fiber like wheat straw, bamboo, bagasse, rice straw, you know, any number of uh, plants that are currently grown as part of the agricultural uh, stream uh, for food and then there's a whole bunch of residue that's left on the field and a lot of that residue gets burned in india for example there's somewhere around 100 million tons that gets burned which you're very aware of i'm sure and if there are ways in which we can turn the cellulose from that which would be burned into a useful product And by doing that, not log forests, and by doing so, maintain the capacity of those forests to fix carbon out of the atmosphere uh, and to provide home for species and and rain, etc. Then you have a really great alternative, which both meets some of the environmental targets that we're aiming to achieve, but also helps farmers gain a better income from the residues, from the agricultural products that they produce. Uh, and um, the uh, opportunity to build a more circular, greener economy because it takes less energy, less water, and less chemicals. If we utilize what we are currently burning or throwing away in landfill, we can eliminate the need entirely to log any forest uh, to make pulp for paper or for uh, man-made cellulosic textiles. That's not what we're advocating. We think that forests will continue to be part of the supply chain. But we're just aware that if we really wanted to utilize the waste stream to prevent this word waste from even existing, it doesn't exist in nature. We've invented the word waste in order to cope with a problem that we've come to accept And we don't need to accept it. We do not need to have waste. So this is what Canopy is working on, is the solution, how to build the whole business ecosystem from the innovator and draw it right through to the brand.
0: Are you enjoying this thought-provoking conversation? Want to make sure you never miss an episode? If so, follow us on social media. You can follow us at Good Garbage Podcast on Instagram Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Now, let's get back to the conversation. I have a dilemma, and I have I have to run this by you both uh, to give clarity on this. So what I saw while operating in India, that 80% of the paper actually came from recycled waste, but the Indian origin recycled waste products were not good enough. So what I was noticing is that almost maybe eighty percent of the waste was coming all the way, mostly from United States. So they were somebody was collecting it in the United States, piling it up, sending all this uh, waste to India, and the company would use almost seventy to eighty percent of the energy that a virgin fiber would take to recover fifty percent of that waste, and then send it all the way back. So that I saw on one end. The other end I saw other companies, and that was using virgin material, but they were not allowed to log any forests for sure. So so they were having to do what they call social forestry or farm forestry, where they would encourage the farmers to plant either on the boundary or intercrop. And it was mostly Australian eucalyptus that was being, uh, being used because it was fast growth, four to five years, you can get pulpwood. Those were the two sides I was noticing. So my natural inclination was that the virgin materials, in a way, it's better because at least they are growing that tree and they are doing it very locally. It's only in like a 30, 40, 50 kilometer uh, kind of radius. And the farmer gets benefited by this extra income and they are not transporting all this waste from all over the world. I would love to learn what you guys think about it. And, you know, there's a dichotomy, you know, where do you go?
1: It is a dilemma. It's We've designed these crazy global supply chains where we ship things from one end of the planet to the other, both in terms of recycled content, uh, recycled paper content, recycled plastics, obviously, but also uh, wood chips, logs, pulp gets shipped around the world as well for paper manufacturing. And so I think there's a multitude of issues within there. In terms of the hierarchy of fiber and fiber impacts, then recycled paper is at the top of the hierarchy. It has the lowest footprint um, in terms of energy and carbon. Of course, when you're shipping it around the world and then putting it on a truck to drive it across the country, then you know, that kind of ecological advantage starts to be undermined. But recycled paper and keeping it out of landfills and stopping it from degrading into methane in landfills is really beneficial. It is the most environmentally sound feedstock back into paper production. Now, it would be ideal for that to be happening onshore, Within the countries of collection, and for us to be supporting the build up of really robust recycling collection systems and infrastructure around the world, as well as processing. And it's not okay for you know the global north to be continuing to just kind of export all of their waste and recycled products elsewhere for other people and other countries to have to manage and deal with. Right? Like that's really not acceptable. You know, there is a role for agroforestry. Um, and so I think it's really about how do you support agroforestry? How do you support other fiber use that's a byproduct of other existing production processes? And how do you make sure that the trees that potentially are involved in any kind of more localized agroforestry are being sustainably managed and are suitable and endemic to the region?
2: Valerie? Uh, well, agroforestry is actually really a very important part of solutions. It has multiple benefits when done well, and there are lots of opportunities to do it well. It uh, creates more diversity on a landscape, which uh, makes a, uh, an area less prone to pest infestations, for example, and uh, provides some cooling and windbreaks, etc. for soils, if the right kinds of trees are planted, it can actually help uh, secure water into the water table rather than dry the water table out. So it, it can be a, a very successful part of farming process, good for soils, good for providing fiber, diversifying uh, farmer incomes, as, as you mentioned as well. There's almost never a paper that's just one fiber, it's kind of this beautiful chemistry of what, what works exactly right for exactly the right product. And so sometimes you can use 100% recycled, but sometimes you can't and you need a virgin fiber. Recycled can only be recycled up, you know, five or six times and then the quality's too low and you need to add virgin fiber in to increase the strength of of a, a package. And so, there's no reason why we shouldn't be using trees in some uh, of the packaging that's out there. But which trees, from where, and how much? Those are the big questions. And people often want silver bullet solutions. Well, the the answer to almost every question is, it, it depends. And the it depends usually comes back to, are we exceeding nature's limits to absorb the impact
1: yeah, I, I just wanted to jump in and, veg. you probably want to take us somewhere else. But I think it comes back to your opening point, which is partly around scale. And I think the scale of production that there currently is, is very difficult to meet from any single source. Now, at the moment, we're relying too much on forest ecosystems to provide a large balance of that fiber it would be very challenging for agroforestry if it's truly being done in a sustainable way to meet the volume demands that are needed. And as Valerie mentioned, recycled fiber is really important and does need to be paired with virgin fiber. And, and virgin fiber could be from trees, from an agroforestry operation being truly sustainably managed. And virgin fiber can come from agricultural fibers that are you know, potentially grown on purpose, or they're a byproduct of another production food production system.
0: I couldn't agree more, and I want to talk more uh, about Pack for Good initiative. What does that mean to you, and how how you guys are going about it, and how you are measuring impact?
1: Sure. Pack for Good uh, is our work that's focused on transforming the impacts of the paper packaging supply chain and and transitioning it to be a more sustainable uh, supply chain, just recognizing that packaging is an integrated part of modern day life. Uh, There are, as Valerie mentioned, three billion trees that disappear into packaging every year. That is growing quite aggressively, partly because of the surge in e-commerce. And for every e-commerce purchase, there's seven times the amount of packaging associated with that purchase than if you go to a bricks-and-mortar store, which I still find that number boggling. And then, of course, the the good and much-needed movement that there is away from plastic packaging is creating this completely unintended consequence of just exacerbating the problems and the pressure on forest ecosystems, driving further deforestation and forest degradation. As companies shift away from using plastic, but without actually really thinking about their packaging strategy in a, as a holistic, sustainable packaging strategy. And they're just kind of basically trading in one environmental disaster for another. So Pack for Good is an initiative to basically help ensure uh, that we're not trading in dead dolphins for dead orangutans, that we are actually developing a holistic approach to sustainable packaging. And so we're working with brands to basically help them develop a complementary strategy to what many companies already have in place for plastics that focused on their wood-based packaging or their paper-based packaging. So ensuring that their boxes and their wrappings don't come from the world's high carbon, high biodiversity value forests, that they are really helping the development and the scaling of next generation solutions so these kind of packaging products that are using agricultural residues or other low carbon feedstocks rather than forests and that they're working to help advance both sustainable forest management as well as ultimately forest conservation at scale and and as you mentioned we've been blown away actually with how receptive brands are to this. We have over 120 large brand partners already formally on board ben and jerry's just came on uh, most recently in the food and beverage sector you know we have luxury champagne companies like veuve clicquot and the other uh, champagne and alcohol beverage brands that you will be familiar with under the lvmh group as well as big fashion brands like h&m and many many others on board and they're all committed to ensuring that there's no ancient and endangered forest working on smart design. So how can there be better resource efficiency with the design and the systems that they have of packaging? And then ultimately, what are the lower carbon alternatives that they can be really helping pull through at scale? So we're excited about the momentum that there is, right? Because what we find is when brands, so these large corporate consumers of packaging or viscose, but in this case packaging, When they start sending a very clear indication back through the supply chain to their suppliers, as well as to the investment community, that this is the direction that they're heading, that they will have zero tolerance from packaging coming from ancient and endangered forests and that they need solutions, then what we tend to find is that that really helps spur the supply chain, both conventional producers as well as innovators, to be able to work through, okay, how do we actually meet the needs of our customers and their sustainability goals? And it helps move finance into the sector as well.
0: So I really find it wonderful that when you say that, you know, there's so much receptiveness and I'm sure you face your challenges, but I think overall, if there is receptiveness, a good sign and you know that's probably an indication that the world is shifting and it's going to take its time but it, and they actually walk the talk so that's the other challenge you can do a lot of greenwashing but but are you really walking the talk and that takes me really well to valerie something that you are leading is the next gen solutions and how does that tie in
2: right. well one of the the factors in drawing a next generation alternative into production is the security that somebody's going to buy it (laughs) when it's on the market. (laughs) If there's a, a mill or a new technology or an existing mill that wants to expand, for example, they have to be able to prove to a potential investor that somebody's going to buy the end product. So Canopy's been working to build the market. That was our first order of work for many years. That's all that we did was build the receptivity in the market for Better forestry uh, products and next generation alternatives. So that's kind of been our raison d'être for a long time. And we we started to shift as the the market was more secured, i.e., our brands were saying in writing yes, we will give preference to these next generation products when they're on the market. We start to shift to okay, how can we mobilize this financing in this direction? Which are the technologies? or ventures that are ready to scale up, and how can we link these three parts, the innovative ventures, the, the investors, and the brands that would buy the product. So we're, we've actually really buckled down on that part of our work in the last uh, few years, now that we feel more confident that the technologies are ready to scale and that the market is receptive. We are hearing something uh, from brand partners, which is a barrier that we've yet to, to leap over. I, I believe it's a cultural shift within business. Most companies are so used to buying products that are really cheap because most of the costs have been offloaded onto the environment, right? They, they didn't have to pay for the pollution. They didn't have to pay for the uh, the carbon emissions they didn't they didn't have to pay for the degraded landscapes right and so the offloading of our industrialization those costs onto onto the environment and onto frontline communities it's basically products that don't reflect the true cost of the product and when you start to create an environmentally preferable product you pay the cost of making sure that it's a closed loop technology that's not throwing chemicals into the river. You know, the industrial model has really warped the perception of what a product should cost. And that's a cultural shift that has to be addressed, whether that's passed on down to the consumer or whether it's the shareholders who agree that the the, the 20 cents per more that it costs on a t-shirt, which is really what it turns out to be, just has to be absorbed. You know somebody has to absorb it, and the expectation that it's going to be absorbed by a manufacturer who already is manufacturing at really low margins, like which makes it unprofitable, just means that they will never get the product, ecological product they want in the volumes that they expect. And so we're working to get brands to leap that cultural barrier, that the expectation that that the environmental cost can be at no cost to them. They have to accept some premium, at least at the beginning, until economy of scale production kicks in, technologies are refined to be highly efficient, but it shouldn't be the barrier. We can't afford, literally, we can't afford in terms of survival of the human species on this planet, as well as every other species, we can't afford to continue to offload Uh, the costs of industrial commodity production onto the environment. So Canopy feels that there can be price competitive, volume competitive, quality competitive products on the paper and packaging side made from next generation alternative feedstocks. This is already starting to happen. It's not something of the future. It's already on the market on the paper side. Uh, Companies should be buying what currently exists first and then looking to buy what needs to come onto the market next. So support those that are already producing now and support the increasing volumes of next gen that need to come onto market to replace the fibre that's currently being drawn from ancient and endangered forests.
1: What I see is that there's a lot of excitement about the burgeoning technology Uh, that is out there. And there's a pipeline of very strong game-changing technologies. But it's not the tech itself that is going to drive the transformation. Right? It's the application of that tech at scale. And so that requires market pull-through, which we've been doing a lot of work to mobilize. And it requires investment to start really moving into these technologies so that they can be built, the infrastructure and the industrial ecosystem that supports them the aggregation and collection of agricultural residues or or textiles diversion out of, of landfills and aggregation all of that other uh, part of the industrial ecosystem needs to be built and scaled and we need to be scaling it quickly right like we have planetary targets between now and 2030 that require us to you know Stop standing on the sidelines. It's a little bit like going to a teenage dance party. Everybody's kind of standing around a little shy uh, on the sidelines. We need to be, you know, choosing our dance partners and getting onto that floor and carving it up.
0: I think that's that's a great analogy. (laughs) I think what uh, you've talked about is so valuable when I even look at it from our perspective as a company that's deeply passionate about making change because it all comes down to building that market and getting that letter of intent changes everything. Honestly, believe that you are absolutely right. It is a very short transition time for even the cost. The cost will come in place. It will be the same or even a lower price, I would say. I want to throw a little bit of light because I know that you've been actually working on few technologies and there have been investments that you've made in China, in Sweden, and then and the Washington area. You know, there have been certain investments that you guys have encouraged. And of course, if you can throw more light on the kind of capital that you're trying to build to enable these technologies to see the light of day.
1: Yeah. So we're, we're an environmental not for profit. So I wish we were able to write big checks, but unfortunately we're not. Uh, we're out kind of tap dancing on street corners, fundraising for our annual budget generally. But we have been working to, as Valerie mentioned, set market demand build market demand, focused market demand, and pull through for these products. Within our work of the 800 plus brands that we work with, the vast, vast majority of them have prioritizing next generation solution alternatives and products embedded within their policy commitments. We've then gone that deeper level, uh, Ved, as you were speaking to, of working with brand partners to actually have them articulate specific volumes that they would be willing to commit to and are willing to transition over onto these new lower carbon products when they come to market. And so we currently have just over 500,000 tons, so half a million tons of explicit volume commitments from brand partners. We are now building that. It'll be a million soon, a million tons, and then sort of onward and forward from there. Uh, we have helped speed date technologies with their angel investors. Uh, we did that with Columbia Pulp, the North America's first uh, straw pulp mill that was built at commercial scale. We have helped with securing multi-year offtake agreements that has then unlocked the broader finance package. That was the case with Cell, which is the world's first textile-to-textile textile pulp mill that will feed into the Visco supply chain. That's a 120,000-ton facility that will open in Sweden this September. Um, and then we are now starting to work more directly within the investment uh, field, looking at you know how are the ways that we can play a more active role in mobilizing the scale of investment that's required. Because over the next 10 years, we need... At least 64 billion dollars to be invested in this infrastructure transition. About 64 billion, which sounds like a lot of money, except for the fact when you consider that the company that uh, sells Botox sold for 68 billion in 2018, and if you break it out over the many, many countries where this new infrastructure needs to be built, then it's a, it's a bargain. You know, like at double the price, basically.
0: So if I, if I ask you both, if you look at a time horizon of maybe five or ten years, what would success uh, for Canopy look like? Uh, Valerie, why don't you take that first?
2: Uh, well, on, on the next generation side, I would say that in the next three to four years that we would see the, the beginning of that, that hockey stick curve of uh, infrastructure. We know that the first, let's say, two million tons of uh, next-gen production will be the proof of concept. And if that's in place in the next three, four years, that we then feel that there will be a pile-in of investment because it meets so many needs. It meets uh, climate needs. It meets biodiversity needs. It avoids landfill uh, waste. It creates a circular economy and it helps uh, eliminate things like pollution from burning residues and that's affecting health in cities like Delhi, right? So with all of those benefits, we think that once you have commercial proof of concept, that that hockey stick rise with that first four years being the proof of concept, will then just go boom and we'll hit our targets. And I want everybody to be uh, feel good about being involved. I want the investment community to feel like they're finally doing good, not just making money. I want them to make money, but I want them to do it by doing good. I want brands to feel like they're achieving their ambitious objectives as well, being part of solutions. And, you know, I want orangutans and uh, tigers to live forever. So that's, that's success
1: for me. Surprise, surprise. We kind of have very clear organizational goals and there's a lot of alignment between what Valerie and I all say, but maybe if I take it out kind of to the 10 year end of that hockey stick, then we have been successful in replacing 50% of the forest fiber that's currently in the pulp and fiber basket and replaced it with these low-carbon alternatives that is enabling 30 to 50 percent of the world's forest to be conserved, to remain home and habitat to orangutans and to caribou and to jaguars and, and to these species, these magical, mythical creatures that grace the pages of the storybooks that we read as kids and capture our imaginations and so, you know, I think that's the trajectory and the and the vision that we're on. And, and we recognize that no no single organization, no single company can do this by themselves. That's why for us building vehicles like Pack for Good that are really uh, vehicles of collective action, collaborative action towards ambitious impact and outcomes is really important. And holding that sensibility of the art of the possible, right? Like there's a there's a lot of doom and gloom when it comes to uh, conservation and sustainability work. And for us, it's really based in from a place of joy and about what's actually possible and how, how can we actually work together and bring kind of the full potential of the creativity and the smarts and the money and the dedication that all of us have in our different roles, you know, be it as a brand, as an investor, as a producer, as an innovator, a government decision maker, or as an NGO.
0: It's beautiful. So my last question, which has to be asked, what does good garbage mean to you?
2: I'll have a a short answer. Good garbage is a very tiny pile. Okay, I I went with trashy
1: movies on a Saturday afternoon, but um, uh, I think good garbage are the 21st century feedstocks of... The products that modern life is dependent on
0: i love both your answers i think reducing that garbage through using the new technology of uh, material would be so wonderful and i hope there would be no garbage in the future and the way you guys are going i'm you know you guys are such powerhouses and i'm so thankful for you guys taking the time and i would say making me a better person and i'm sure those listening would also be impacted by the work you're doing i wish you all the very best from the bottom of my heart i wish you all the success because your success means success for humankind thank you both for being there with me
2: thank you
1: thank you ved. that's very very generous of you
0: thank you so much for listening to the good garbage podcast i am your host ved krishna What topics in regenerative packaging do you want to hear about next? Let us know by leaving an Apple podcast review or by messaging us on social media. Links are in the description.